0: Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we take a deep dive into the world of QAnon with journalist Mike Rothschild, author of his book, The Storm is Upon Us, how QAnon became a movement, cult, and conspiracy theory of everything. We continue our look into issues facing Canadian cities with food insecurity and over-reliance on food banks and try to figure out why so many of the gaps in our social safety net are left to charities to fill and what real solutions might look like. B.C. has a plan to accredit more doctors trained abroad. We speak to the owner of One Kelowna Clinic, a physician trained in Nigeria, about the details of that plan and where he believes more could be done. But first, it was a big day in Alberta politics as the government introduced Premier Daniel Smith's Sovereignty Bill in the legislature. The proposed legislation would grant Smith and her cabinet broad powers to rewrite provincial laws behind closed doors to push back against Ottawa. What will that accomplish? How much of an overreach is it? Will Albertans support the move? And just as Smith was explaining the legislation in a press conference, her predecessor, Jason Kenney, announced his resignation as an MLA. We'll look into his legacy as well. First up, the changing of the guard is complete in Alberta politics. It was pronounced today. First, A speech from the throne laid out new Premier Daniel Smith's plans, including for the Alberta Sovereignty Act. Bill 1, appropriately, or it's now known as the Alberta Sovereignty in a United Canada Act. Um, A key promise made during her United Conservative Party leadership campaign, the proposed legislation would grant Smith and her cabinet broad powers to rewrite provincial laws behind closed doors and, most importantly here, with an election coming up, push back against Ottawa. Smith says it's an important first step.
1: We are finally telling the federal government, no more. It's time to stand up for Alberta. Bill 1, the Alberta Sovereignty Within a United Canada Act, is a first step in standing up for Albertans and pushing Ottawa back into its own lane. When passed, this legislation will create a constitutional legal framework for Alberta to push back against federal interference and encroachment.
0: All right. So pushback, I'm sure you got that. Ottawa, I'm sure you got that. What exactly any of that meant? I have no idea. I have no idea. It was words, like a word salad. But it's important because it does allow cabinet to direct public bodies, such as school boards, universities and police forces, to not use provincial resources to enforce federal rules deemed harmful to Alberta's interests. What exactly qualifies as harmful isn't clear. Uh, The government promises to follow court rulings and the Constitution in this, but says it would be up to the federal government to sue the province to resolve disputes instead of the other way around.
1: We've been ignored for 10 years. The uh, the former uh, premier, Rachel Notley, tried the climate leadership plan to get a better relationship with Ottawa. It failed. Uh, pr- uh, former premier, uh, Jason Kenney, tried to have a collaborative relationship with Stephen Gabot in Quebec to get LNG export. It failed. We put forward an equalization referendum to try to start a conversation to change the relationship with Ottawa. It failed. So now we're going to try something new.
0: Yeah. I mean, a lot of this is about an election coming up. What better way to fight an election than to make it about someone who's deeply unliked in Alberta, and that's the prime minister. So instead of fighting an election against Rachel Notley and the NDP, you try to fight an election against Ottawa and uh, the federal, you know, the prime minister. I grew up in Quebec. This is is the oldest tactic there is in Quebec. Every election they do this. Every single election. For years they did this. There is nothing, almost nothing new in this playbook other than if you grew up in Quebec. Maybe if you spoke French, you'd see where this was coming from. That being said, it is interesting, and it is important what's been laid out today in Alberta in the Sovereignty Act. Speaking of, um, of moves, Jason Kenney then, the, the, the ink wasn't even dry on this yet, and Jason Kenney announced he was resigning as an MLA, uh, writing on Twitter that after a great deal of reflection and consultation, he concluded that now is the best time to step aside as an MLA. So to dig through all of this is Laurie Williams, a political science professor at Mount Royal University in Calgary. Welcome back. Uh, thanks, Ben. Great to be with you. Yeah, what a what a busy day! <laughs> what a busy day! Yeah, uh, uh, as always in Alberta politics, never a dull moment. Uh, let's start with the Sovereignty Act. What um, what what powers does it give? Was there anything that was announced today in the details that was a surprise?
2: Yeah, the huge surprise is, of course, that the uh, the premier is saying that she will reserve power for uh, for the cabinet to change. Uh, Alberta legislation without going before the legislature to process that, uh, as typically would be the case. This is the sort of power that's exercised during emergencies. Uh, it, was, it was introduced by the Kenny government to deal with the pandemic, but they ultimately backed away from it because it was so unpopular. And it, it was the subject of, of numerous court challenges by civil liberties groups. Um, the, the, why that power was included in this act, why they think they need to, uh, to change legislation without the consent of the legislature is a complete mystery to me. And it goes against the promises Daniel Smith has made throughout her campaign about listening to Albertans, um, of course, to sort of grassroots democracy, transparency, and accountability. This actually removes a significant source of, of accountability, uh, and, and I can only imagine what uh, most of the folks in Alberta and perhaps elsewhere in Canada might say if uh, this were something that were attempted by the federal government. It's it's uh, it's a pretty big power grab, and it it doesn't make a lot of political sense.
0: Specifically not for someone who was elected by a tiny, you know, a tiny minority of people who happen to be UCP members, not even that many of them, really, um, mm-hmm. and who was not elected as, as pre, you know, was not pre, was not on the ballot last time this election came up. In other words, not to say that anything about her power, Daniel Smith's power is illegitimate, but she's not a popular elected leader of the province.
2: Well, it's not just that. It's that public opinion polls are showing that Albertans are concerned with things like affordability, health care and education. Uh, and they not only put sovereignty act. Although we must say that Albertans, many Albertans do support uh, advocacy of Alberta's interests in in Canada, and standing up against uh, inappropriate actions uh, or or uh, legislation or or policies uh, from the federal level that that might be inimical to Alberta's interests. The mass majority of Albertans do not support even the previous statements about the Sovereignty Act, that they, they very strongly opposed it, were worried that it would ultimately be damaging to Alberta. And, and that was in a form that, that didn't look like this. This was never uh, uh, a consideration under the proposals of the Sovereignty Act. And it's in, in, in during the campaign, any statements have always said, it's constitutional, uh, you know, respect court decisions, uh, and so forth, and uh, I guess the difference now is it looks like they they won't uh, they won't respect democratic norms that exist in parliamentary systems.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that that would be. I mean, I guess for so long we've been talking about what what was going. How, for instance, how does a provincial body ignore a federal law? Right. This was sort of where we had landed on how how do you enforce this? But behind it all is this power grab, and it seems. It seems like an odd ploy, with support from within her own cabinet. I, I imagine many of whom opposed yeah. this during the leadership yeah, co- campaign.
2: Yeah, exactly. So, so I mean, there's a contradiction there on all kinds of levels. But, um, but one of them is is that again, this promise of grassroots democracy of listening to Albertans. She's um, not listening to the. Polls that have shown that this isn't the priority for Albertans, and it's gone further than, than ever discussed before. It is interesting that that I mean, we thought, looking at this, that cabinet and those those other leadership candidates that are in cabinet, four of them, uh, sorry, five of them uh, in cabinet, um, would would moderate what this would look like. They would they would not vote for it. They would refuse to let it out of cabinet. Um, and, and caucus would not support it if it, if it didn't um, sort of stay within certain certain parameters. Because all of the leadership candidates talked about advocating more strongly for Alberta's interests. So there's no indication that this will be effective in accomplishing the objectives any more effective than the things that Daniel Smith is, has dismissed. We do know that some members of the caucus did vote against this. Um, and there may be more opposition that emerges as uh, constituents from their MLAs, and cab- uh, some of whom are in cabinet, and say that uh, that they're not on board with this at all. In, this this looks like it's more against Alberta and the citizens of Alberta than it looks to be against the, the federal government, uh, just in terms of the powers that are being drawn here. The legislation that's going to be changed is not federal legislation, it's provincial legislation.
0: Yeah, I, I mean... Do you do you get the sense that like so much of the first first little while of Daniel Smith's uh, leadership here that this is going to be something that gets floated out there, uh, public opinion uh, sort of backlashes and then it's going to be walked back? Is that is that your sense here? I mean, this was clearly an election. This is about an election, right? This is about winning again. One gets the sense this is an outsider's point of view, but this is really about setting up a battle between Edmonton and Ottawa, and you know, and sort of trying to cut Notley out of the picture. I don't think it'll work, but uh, but but this well, is a hard one.
2: Yeah, it, it isn't isn't a priority, not even close to a priority uh, for the majority of Albertans, and, and most Albertans oppose the previous sort of more moderate uh, descriptions of the Sovereignty Act. This goes way further than anything that uh, that that has been said or or discussed in the past. And and I, again, I just don't see the reason for it. Why do, why wouldn't you want to have legislative support? Um, I mean, she's saying that 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 uh, something might be identified, and then they'll be up to cabinet what to do with it. But what they do will not be subject to to legislative scrutiny. It it just it's a complete unnes- completely unnecessary uh, power, and it it looks as though she doesn't trust Albertans and their elected representatives uh, in terms of trying to discuss, debate, perhaps modify some of the, the measures that are being considered.
0: Barry Williams is with us at Mount Royal University. We're talking about uh, the new UCP leader, uh, the new Alberta Premier Daniel Smith, the speech from the throne today, laying out some of their priorities for this legislative session, including the Alberta Sovereignty Act, uh, in which uh, the bill really en- enables her uh, to deem federal laws unconstitutional, to some extent allows it to make unilateral changes to provincial legislation, which has been the big talking point today. And um, Laurie, if you look at what the federal government, how they should react, we've seen them. It's been fairly sanguine today from uh, from Ottawa. Uh, but re, what recourse does Ottawa have in all this, do you think?
2: Well, I, I think we're seeing sort of a political choice saying that they're going to be focused on the things that are important to Albertans. And, and polling is showing that, uh, generally speaking, the other things besides uh, the um, Alberta sovereignty within the United Canada Act are, are their priorities. And so the uh, federal government could actually win some support or at least diminish the opposition to to the Liberal government in Ottawa uh, by focusing on the things that the Albertans need help with and, and it's interesting because Danielle Smith in in um, recent speeches and and promises and and in the throne speech has talked about uh, measures to try to help Albertans with uh, managing inflation um, money being given to seniors and handicapped folks, sen- seniors and so forth, getting $100 a month until the next next election. <clears throat> all of these sorts of things could have, could have uh, been the focus of, of today, but uh, this particular sort of iteration of the Sovereignty Act um, generated all kinds of questions about the power grab, uh, I think have, have sort of knocked that other news off, off of the agenda.
0: Seems like a bit of a gift for, uh, for her opponent, for Rachel Notley and the NDP
2: well and we're seeing rachel notley on social media saying that she promises to respect um albertans um, not to punish uh people for uh for for, uh, getting vaccinated providing funding that is unconditional to nonprofit groups and organizations um ironically uh basically conveying the message that that uh, the ndp support for albertans is not conditional on ideological fidelity uh, but rather on the needs and priorities of Albertans. Uh, and, you know, that's a fairly positive message in response to what Daniel Smith uh, has proposed here today. I, I, I mean, again, it's a, a, an unforced error, distracts from the good news that, that could have been today's throne speech and um, and raises all kinds of questions amongst Albertans about, about what the power grab is about.
0: Speaking of a an odd distraction, Jason Kenney has always managed to make uh, make news today on a day where the news was uh, the media was sort of focused elsewhere. But he's decided to walk away. I guess this brings to an end what had been a fairly interesting while for him. He was a triumphant entrance and and a pretty pretty tame exit for uh, for the longtime cabinet minister and former premier.
2: Right. So he, he not only, as more pointed out earlier, um, tweeted his resignation shortly after the introduction of this act. He tweeted during Daniel Smith's press conference, completely knocking <laughs> the attention. Um, uh, I mean, not he's, he's certainly no in, <laughs> no in terms of, of doing this. Well, I mean, he, he all- allocated most of the surplus before leaving his premier to limit mm-hmm. The, uh, the tools available to the next premier. Uh, in probably in anticipation, Daniel Smith refused to have any con- uh, uh, contact with her or, or engage in the transition and so forth. But it's kind of interesting, too, because Jason Kenney, and you'd think that Daniel Smith might have learned from this, but Jason Kenney um, and Tyler Shandro, the current justice minister, is standing right next to Daniel Smith today. And Tyler Shandro was the health minister when they introduced Bill 10, the Public Health Emergency Powers Amendment Act, uh, which gave emergency powers to cabinet to change legislation on short notice during a public health emergency, and that got so much blowback that they repealed that legislation um, within a relatively short um, period of time. I think, I think it might have been as much as a You know, actually, no, it wasn't quite even a, a year uh, between. Between the enactment and the the repeal of that Could legislation, it because it had been so soundly criticized from all quarters across the ideological spectrum, it was seen as a power grab, and uh, and the government suffered for it. Uh, yet uh, oh. Danielle Smith, with Tyler Shandro, now the justice minister standing re- right next to her, decided to uh, to set off this this uh, this grenade again
0: walk down that path. Lori Williams, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much, as always, for your insight on this.
2: Yeah, thank you very much, Ben. Always good chatting.
0: I've always been fascinated by conspiracy theories. I think everyone kind of is, you know, the unexplained, why things happen, the secret, you know, the truth behind things, not the official line. I mean, it's, 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 It's appealing stuff. They've been around forever, of course. You know, they go back as far as the death of Nero in 68 AD, the assassination of JFK. Of course, they cover all kinds of different events and phenomenon and so on. I mean, it's hard to imagine a major world incident that hasn't spawned a whole series of conspiracies around it. And they range from the mundane to the fascinating to honestly the downright dangerous. Around 2017, a new one arrived in that very long tradition, QAnon. It was really built for a modern age. It started online. Um, you know, the core falsehood at, you know, of it, and this is going to sound ridiculous, but this was the core falsehood, a group of Satan-worshipping elites who run a child sex ring are trying to control our politics and media. That was the core of it. And of course, given that, it started up very much on the fringes that, you know, the people at the center of this were Hillary Clinton, for obvious reasons, Uh, you know, always much demonized on the right. Donald Trump was seen as a great savior in this whole story. Um, And it was, you know, it picked up a lot of press. You probably read about it. I read about it without really knowing what it was. You know, you look into it, but it was hard to really figure out what it was. A lot of it was sort of codified and It was a bit of a secret language, but then it became more mainstream. Fast forward a few years to 2020 and so on, and, you know, with the lockdowns of the pandemic and uh, other issues, other societal things that were going on, and then really the 2020 presidential election, the notion that the election had been stolen, Uh, you know, QAnon was part of that, you know, it was part of the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January the 6th. And by that point, an NPR poll in the States found that 17% of Americans believed in some of what was being peddled. Again, at the center of it all has been former President Donald Trump, both the object of adulation within the conspiracy and increasingly something that he appears to embrace. How much he really embraces it, who knows? He's often said he knows nothing about it except they think he's great, which is great. Uh, But at a recent rally in Ohio, this is prior to the midterms, he was campaigning for J.D. Vance, who went on to win. Um, there was some music being played under the former president's speech as the crowd, apparently, simultaneously, not everyone, but a lot of people, raised their index fingers in the air. To people to know, the music sounded identical to the QAnon theme song, and this was a conspiracy theory salute. Here's what he had to say. It was hardworking patriots like you
1: who built this country, and it is hardworking patriots like you who are going to save our country we will stand up to the radical left lunatics and rhinos, and we will fight for America like no one has ever fought before.
0: Yeah, you recognize the voice. The music is really what you're supposed to be listening to there. Um, now, the conspiracy itself has kind of moved into mainstream politics, perhaps not in a huge way. Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, probably the most famous of those, Lorraine Bobart, uh, also famous as well in all this. Marjorie, rather, I'm getting that name wrong. Um, but the midterms show there was some limited appeal there. You know, those who who espouse conspiracies didn't do too well. Uh, about 20 made it onto the congressional ballot in November. Only two, uh, including Green, were actually elected. But meantime, the movement has been evolving, growing, leaving behind its roots, moving into other countries, including Canada. So tonight we're going to learn more about its origins, the evolution, and the threat that it poses. And to help us do that is journalist Mike Rothschild. He's the author of a book called The Storm is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult, and the Conspiracy Theory of Everything. And he joins us from Los Angeles. Thanks for your time.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I think oftentimes people see QAnon written about, spoken about, opined upon, but aren't exactly sure what ex- what that means. So this all started about five years ago now.
1: It did, and the the answer to the question "What is QAnon?" almost depends on when you're asking it. For the first three plus years of its existence, really up until Joe Biden's inauguration, Q was a movement that was focused on Donald Trump carrying out a secret purge of the deep state and the democratic party and the hollywood and business elite all this would start with a tweet from trump where he would say my fellow americans the storm is upon us and then there would be a vast unsealing of uh, of indictments and all of these hundreds of thousands of people would be snapped up and tried in the field, and the verdict would always be guilty, and the punishment would always be death. And there, there was this very built out story that went with QAnon, and you know, it was always about to happen. It was soon, it was a few weeks, it was, we just need to get a few more things in order. You know, this is such a big upheaval, it all has to be perfect. And then suddenly Trump wasn't the president anymore. So the idea that he could uh, enact a purge of the deep state on Twitter, which he also wasn't on anymore, it really had no power anymore. He couldn't do it. And of course, a a person with a more logical bent would say, well, he had all this time to do it. Why didn't he do it? Why are we still talking about this? But of course, when you're really deeply enmeshed in a conspiracy theory, you're not talking logically. You're not answering very simple questions. You're, You're so desperate to believe it. You're so desperate to keep the story going that you'll do anything and you will believe anything. And so now we're at a point where Q is a much more mainstream philosophy. It's much more about just, you know, election fraud in general and COVID-19 being a hoax and cancel culture and the culture war and all of this kind of standard right-wing Republican stuff. It's not so much about a purge of the deep state. It's not so much about the occult. You know, those things don't have a lot of power anymore. But Q's philosophy is really very mainstream in American conservatism now
0: yeah, I mean, I mean, you've spoken about how it went from being you know a sort of a cool secret club as you you meant you described it, into really something that you hear about quite frequently coming out of the mouths of certain people running for office, even. I mean, people of influence, to be honest,
1: right. They don't talk about the really bizarre aspects of it. They don't talk about the 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 decoding and the numerology and the sacrifices and rituals and baby's blood. That stuff is not really appealing to most people. But Q is now very appealing as kind of a, a way of seeing things, as saying, well, you know, they, they took the election from us and they forced lockdowns on us. And what are we going to do about it? How are we going to fight back? Q becomes much more of a method of kind of organizing information. And of course, the things that QAnon believers think are true are so popular in American conservatism that you can't really push back against them. You, you can't be a Republican in, in many instances if you don't believe that the election was fraudulent. So you now have a, a movement where the, the mythology of it is very mainstream, even if the really weird aspects are, are not really talked about anymore.
0: Um, who is Q so people understand? And 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 fascinatingly enough, how did one among so many conspiracy theories out there, how did that one catch
1: on? Well, that's a great question, and I think it really goes to a lot of the history of of what went into QAnon, and I write about this quite a bit in the book. You know, these long running scams and frauds, and you know, anti Semitic tropes going back to the Middle Ages. But to me, what really caught on with Q, why the the QAnon meme caught on, when a lot of these other things, a lot of these other anonymous four chan posters, like FBI and on and White House insider never got any kind of real traction is because it really revolved around Hillary Clinton being arrested. And the American right has basically been in a kind of trance for the last 30 something years over. When is Hillary Clinton going to get what's coming to her? She's involved in all of these horrible things. She and Bill are the worst people on earth. They get away with everything, going all the way back to things like Whitewater and Travelgate, you know, these conspiracy theories that are, seem like they're from a, another generation, I and mean, they really are. But Hugh really focused in on Hillary Clinton getting arrested. That was the first Q post, was Hillary's going to go down. And I think a lot of people who maybe would have looked kind of sideways at some of these things looked at this and went, finally, it's going to happen. The thing that we've dreamed of for so long, and, and, and they just talked themselves into it being real, just because they so desperately wanted it to be real.
0: It reminds me of seeing sort of certain tabloids at the grocery store in the early 90s. I mean, it's it's sort of the same, it's recycling the same narrative. Sort it's of. totally
1: the same narrative, yeah.
0: When we look at it now, though, and you mentioned it's become the conspiracy of everything, it really has evolved into something quite different. How dangerous do you think that is when you have a segment of the population who, I mean, people have always believed in conspiracies, right? I guess what makes this one different from... Conspiracy theories theorists of the past.
1: Sure. And, and people have always believed in conspiracy theories and th- that kind of conspiracy ideation, I, I think is very American. The idea that there are powerful forces that are controlling us and, you know, somebody's out to get us. And, you know, our, our failures are not because of us. They're because of some nebulous power that doesn't want us to be successful. That's very appealing to people. It makes you feel like you are important If you have powerful, important enemies, Q has just kind of taken that innate desire and turned it into a a sort of a Tom Clancy style techno thriller. So there are codes and and ciphers and things to uh, to decode and decrypt and riddles and rhetorical questions. And it's something that you can participate in and move the story forward. On your own, you don't need to have any kind of special knowledge or special abilities. You just need to be kind of unsatisfied with what you're being told. And it it really taps into this feeling that we have, especially right now, but I think we've always had that we're being lied to, that the media is lying to us. The politicians are lying to us. Big business is lying to us. Banking is lying to us. Hollywood is lying to us. And the acolytes that we've glommed onto, those are the people telling us the truth. So whether it's Q right now, or it's Alex Jones, or it would have been a figure like David Icke, or the John Birch Society, these are the people who know what's going on and are giving us the truth about what's really going
0: on. Mike Rothschild is with us this half hour. He's a journalist, author of The Storm is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult and Conspiracy Theory of Everything. Uh, Mike, you were mentioning it before, this notion of secret knowledge is still very important, right? I know something that you don't. And if you don't believe the way I do, then you're basically a sheep, right? That's always the, the criticism thrown out there.
1: Yeah, it's it it makes people feel like their little lives are much more important than they really are. You know, that feeling of I am special. I am important. I know what's really going on. And if you don't listen to me, then you're the crazy one. You think I'm crazy. Well, I think you're crazy because you believe the lies. You're taking the vaccines. You're you're voting like your vote matters, like it won't be stolen. There's almost a kind of smugness about it. And to the point where people kind of don't want to be around you anymore. And then it proves, oh, you're just stuck in your in your sheeple life. You know, you don't want to know what's going on.
0: Yeah, you can't handle the truth, right? To quote a famous line. Um, Q has stopped. I mean, I think there was one recently, but Q has more or less, in all of this, the oddity, of course, is that Q has is kind of disappeared.
1: And it's, it's interesting because a lot of the questions I would get around the time when Q is really actively posting, mm-hmm. is it a cult? And I would think, well, Q is not really the a, a traditional kind of cult guru. And then, of course, Q disappeared entirely, only to come back a little bit over the summer. And then recently there have been some other Q posts, but they're, they're very low energy. They're, they're very low effort, kind of poorly written. And, and the Q community is not particularly excited about it. They seem like they've moved on from their need for cryptic posts and, and, you know, clue deciphering and riddles. I think they want action. They want to know that there won't be another stolen election in 2024. There won't be another round of lockdowns and what they think are forced vaccinations. They don't need riddles. They need action. And Q is only able to provide riddles.
0: So what happens to a movement such as Q if it becomes bigger, broader, and leaderless?
1: You know, you have some very hardcore elements who are still very devoted to the Q drops and very devoted to the mythology. You know, some of the groups like the negative 48 group that's in Dallas right now, They've been there for a year and they're reading Q drops like their scriptures, waiting for JFK Jr. to come back. But then other groups are focusing much more on coronavirus or on the 2020 election or on the 2022 midterms they're taking the, the really strange parts of QAnon and, and kind of sanding them off because they don't really translate without new Q drops. But you have a lot of people who've internalized this mythology and they don't need Q anymore. You know, people don't go to church asking their pastor, hey, when are we going to get new books of the Bible? You know, We've had these for thousands of years. When are we going to get some new stuff? Right. They don't want new stuff. The, the the old stuff gives them everything that they need, and some parts of it maybe don't work as well anymore. So those parts are discarded or forgotten about. But they reinterpret these scriptures over and over and over for whatever is going on in the news and in their lives right now. And as
0: you mentioned, it's always it's often the same narrative, right? The the puppeteer, the puppet master, is always the narrative. It seems at least There's some you know some force behind the scenes is controlling everything to your disadvantage.
1: Right. There's never going to be anything particularly new in any of these movements. You know, if you look at the tropes of of QAnon, this is all stuff that was spouted 100 years ago by anti-Semitic pamphlets. You know, the idea of of a hidden hand or the secret government controlling all of the world's wealth. This is not something that was made up on 4chan. It was just packaged in a much more, Uh, new and seeming kind of uh, presentation, very social media friendly, very shareable, but it's the same stuff. And it's always going to be the same stuff.
0: When you look at the social media aspect of this, uh, there had been sort of, at least on some of the more mainstream social media platforms, such as Twitter, there had been sort of a concerted effort to try to get rid of some of this stuff. We're seeing it come back though, aren't we?
1: Yeah, we really are. And for a long time, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube—they really had no idea what to do with any of this, and they really didn't do anything. Um, you know, Twitter allowed this to to prosper with no oversight whatsoever. Facebook really was the same during the early days of the pandemic. It really took until about the summer of 2020 for some of these sites to start to crack down on some of this stuff, and really only after January 6th was. Tw- was QAnon almost completely banished from Twitter, but now of course there's new ownership and the rules are really being relaxed and it's it's very much in flux right now. A lot of the promoters are talking about coming back, but some of them haven't been unbanned yet and it's not clear if they will be. Um, you know, They're also really liking places like Telegram and Truth Social where there's not much oversight and they can kind of say what they want and it's easier to monetize a lot of what they're doing. So it's it's really still very much up in the air how the new Twitter ownership is going to affect the conspiracy movement.
0: Mike Rothschild is still with us, a journalist, author of The Storm is Upon Us, about QAnon. Uh, We've been talking about both the origins of QAnon, how it persists, evolves, the threat that it poses. Uh, Mike, I was curious to see, and I think you wrote about this as well, that a lot of the candidates in the 2022 midterms who were more out there when it came to sort of uh, spewing some of the conspiracy stuff didn't do well. Uh, Do you think there is a recognition now out there? There's sort of a pushback as more and more of us, I mean, you mentioned how it went from being sort of a you know, sort of a secret club to being mainstream. And when something becomes mainstream, more people know about it, more people push back against it.
1: Yeah, it was very heartening to me to see the failure of most of these really hardcore QAnon candidates. And a lot of these election deniers who ran for secretary of state positions, not only lost, they significantly underperformed a lot of other Republicans running in those states. We saw that happen in Nevada, where the Republican flipped the gubernatorial office but the Republican Secretary of State candidate, a very, very hardcore election denier who had claimed that he wouldn't have certified Joe Biden in 2020 and he would never certify a Democrat, he, he underperformed by three or four points less than the, than the gubernatorial candidate who won. So I think it was really a lot of Americans saying, we'll accept a lot, but there are things that we will not accept. We, we are not quite ready to be the generation that abandons Uh, representative democracy in the United States. It it made me feel good. You know, it made me feel like maybe there are people who are listening and maybe there is just a line that you can't quite cross yet.
0: And yet Donald Trump uh, has announced uh, his candidacy, at least to be the uh, Republican nominee for the 2024 presidential election. Uh, Twitter is under new ownership. We're seeing a bit. Do you feel like there is a chance that that the whole thing could gain momentum once again? Or is it maybe yesterday's yesterday's conspiracy theory
1: i think that qAnon as we knew it you know with the drops and and all that stuff that probably has gone about as far as it can go but these ideas now are extremely popular and of course trump is using truth social to share all of these qAnon memes and the, these qAnon images and his followers are loving that and he's feeling like you know these are his people and they've got his back it really remains to be seen how much he's going to talk about this stuff as his campaign goes forward. I mean, you know, we got a long way to go until there's any primary elections. It seems like a long time to sustain a uh, a presidential campaign when nobody else is campaigning. But, you know, he definitely feels like these people are are his group and, and the, they love him no matter what. And he's going to pander to them. And I think a lot of other Republicans are maybe just a little bit tired of it and a little bit tired of Trump sucking all of the oxygen out of every single room he goes into. So I think it's going to remain to be seen how the conspiracy movement is going to handle it if the Republican Party at large starts to turn away from Trump. You know, Are they going to stay loyal to Trump? Or are they going to kind of unite behind the idea that any Republican is better than a Democrat? We just don't know yet.
0: It's interesting that because it's expanded beyond that initial, you know, arrest of Hillary Clinton, Trump is Trump is some sort of savior, uh, that it's become easier to export as well. Because clearly, we have I, we have QAnon followers in this country, in Canada, and elsewhere around the world. Uh, when you get rid of bit a bit of the, sort of the specifics of the mythology, it becomes a more exportable product: conspiracy in general.
1: Yeah, it really does, and that's really how QAnon uh, prospered in other countries. You know, QAnon became very popular in Germany, very popular in France, um, became very popular in Japan. Mm. And what would happen is the believers in those countries would take the parts of QAnon that were the most universal, the sort of anti-authority, you know, everybody's lying to you, save the children, all that stuff. And they would discard the much more America-centric elements, but also combine it with some of their local politics and local culture. So it, it became a movement that was very adaptable to every country. If you just change some of the details somewhat, a lot of what's in QAnon is, is universal. It's always been universal. You know, this idea that people have the power and you know, we can create memes and videos and, and you know, cast off our oppression, that's going to appeal to people pretty much anywhere.
0: Yeah and and especially in a Canadian context because we are pretty we we have a pretty keen understanding of the American context. Uh, it makes it even more interesting because there is sort of a blend of the two in the Canadian conspiracy world.
1: Yeah, you you take the the parts of it that fit, fit best with your own culture and you run with those. And the rest of it, you know, people don't need to care about the intricacies of the US Supreme Court or, you know, the US Senate, but the idea that the media is lying to you and America is exporting Satanism and pedophilia around the world, you know, that's stuff, that's stuff that a lot of people can get beyond.
0: Where to now do you think then uh, I guess it's sort of become ingrained. I mean, I, I, I don't know it well enough to recognize when it's, when, when it's being peddled, to be honest, uh, yeah, uh, it, do you, you, you must obviously.
1: It, yeah. I mean, I definitely recognize the catchphrases and the hashtags and yeah, the concepts, but so many of those things are just universal conspiracy theory ideas. You know, stuff that really would have been at home in a, you know, homemade pamphlet in the 1890s or a you know, video sold at a truck stop in the 1980s. You know, this stuff doesn't change that much from generation to generation. Do
0: you combat it or do you actively combat
1: it or do you let it run its course, do you think? It's really, really difficult because any effort at actively combating it is going to be pulled into the conspiracy as proof that you are, you know, over the target. You know, they're only shooting at you because you are getting close to the truth. The, the way to really combat it is not through sort of large scale debunking. I mean, that that's very useful when you have people who are encountering it for the first time. When you have people whose family members are sucked into it and they're really looking for answers, they're not people who would believe it themselves. That's when you know large-scale kind of debunking or, or pre-debunking, which is becoming more popular, that can be effective. But when you have a Q believer or a stolen election believer or an anti-vaxxer in your family, it, it really has to be done with a, a high degree of empathy. And of course, it's really hard to have empathy for. Election deniers and insurrectionists and anti-vaxxers—you know these are not people who um, necessarily radiate warmth, and you you don't really want to be around these people. You don't have to have sympathy for them, but if there is that person in your life who is really getting sucked into this, the thing that you can do for them is just to kind of let them know that you still care, and let them know that you are out there. That you don't want to talk about QAnon, you don't want to talk about how you know COVID is a hoax created in a bio lab by George Soros. That's not something you're interested in. But you are there for them if they want to talk about regular life things, or they want to unplug, or if these things start to um, stop making sense to them. Then you have give you've presented yourself as kind of a safe harbor when everybody else has probably turned away from them.
0: Yeah, you don't want to shut people down completely. That just reinforces what they believed in in the first place, right?
1: Right. It reinforces the persecution complex, the idea that I'm onto something, they're all out to get me, they all hate me. If everybody has told you that they hate you or cut you out of your life, well, that's only going to reinforce that. But if you have somebody who just sort of stubbornly sticks around and says, hey, I still care about you, let me know if you need anything, or you should check in on them every so often now that that doesn't mean you have to have sympathy for insurrectionists or racists. I, I would never ask that of anyone. but if you really do want this person in your life still, there are things that you can do, and the first thing you can do is really just be there
0: as a last question as a journalist, as an investigative journalist, and an author, do you worry at all that when these sorts of conspiracy theory a movements become quite mainstream and talked about quite a bit. I mean, it's it's important that we still question, right? It's important that we doubt. Um, but when something like a QAnon comes along, it starts to blur the lines between conspiracy and just and normal skepticism. And that could be a little strange to navigate, I imagine.
1: Oh, absolutely. I I, you know, I think that we should question what we're told. We should, you know, seek answers. We shouldn't be satisfied with just sort of pat statements and, and, you know, being fobbed off with, with, you know, giveaways or things like that. We should always be skeptical, particularly of claims that don't make a lot of sense. The problem with QAnon is that it doesn't make a lot of sense. And it transforms you into a person who thinks that you are questioning everything. In reality, though, you're just shutting yourself off from not only your, your life, but of, of, Being able to trust and to appreciate things. QAnon turns people very cynical, very bitter, very dour. And I don't think healthy skepticism should involve any of that.
0: Mike Rothschild, thank you so much. Thank you. We continue our look tonight into the issues that are impacting our cities. Last night, we looked at uh, the issue of homelessness. Tonight, we're going to look at an issue that is probably a little more hidden. And that's food insecurity. It's not purely a urban issue. It exists across this country. But in many ways, the the dual uh, pressures of high housing costs um, and high grocery costs these days are creating more food insecurity in urban areas. Um, I saw a really interesting report that came out yesterday by a group called Feed Ontario um, that found that In the year ending this past March 31st, nearly 600,000 people in that province alone, 600,000 people had access to food bank. A 15% increase over the last two years. It represents some 4.3 million visits. That's a 42% increase over the same period. It was called the Hunger Report. It also said in the first nine months of 2022, the number of people accessing food banks was up 24% over the year before, and that one in three people was seeking help from a local food bank for the first time, one in three—a twenty-four percent increase—in one in three people was at a food bank for the first time. In other words, more people are turning to food banks because they have to, and those who use them are doing so more often. This is the sixth consecutive year, by the way, that food bank use has risen, according to that report. Uh, it, it feeds into something called food insecurity. Not, not everyone who is food insecure will turn to a food bank. It's often the last resort when you're food insecure. But if you look across this country. Nearly twenty percent, as high as twenty percent of Canadian households, are food insecure. Forty percent of single mother-led ones are food insecure. Um, and food charity, which often seems like the obvious place to ease that problem, has never been a real solution to that. In fact, uh, many people who work in that field don't think it is. And those who turn to food charity don't can't put food reliably put food on the table either. In fact, uh, it's you know. It's seen as a last resort, as I was saying, uh, when there are no other options. So, what are the solutions to this? Because clearly, food banks—it was meant to be temporary when food banks came along decades ago—and here they are, sort of an integral part of how we meet these emergencies. And as was pointed out by a listener earlier, it's in many ways it's it's a it's a it's a scar on Canadian society that so many people. Even those working families are forced to turn to aid simply to put proper food on the table. know there must be a better way of doing this. And again, I've noticed it here in Victoria. You notice it elsewhere. Cities are the epicenter of this problem. They're not the only place where it exists. It exists everywhere. But cities are often the epicenter because the pressures, the jobs are here. Uh, rents are expensive. Housing's expensive. Food's expensive. Gas is expensive. Everything is climbing. So what are the solutions? To help us with that, Valerie Tarasuk is a professor in the Department of Nutritional Sciences at the University of Toronto and leads a group called PROOF, a research program that investigates policy interventions to reduce food insecurity in this country. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. It feels like as we head into the holidays, uh, we see lots of appeals from food banks. We're seeing lots of concern A report out of Ontario yesterday with the surge in use of food banks. And it all leads uh, the layperson to think that food insecurity is becoming an increasingly A large problem in this country?
3: Well, I think it's, I don't know if it's becoming increasingly large, but I think it's becoming increasingly serious. Mm. I mean, we've long known that the number of people who are food insecure in Canada is quite a bit larger than the number who turn up in food banks. Um, The differences are maybe four or five fold. So it's a Mm. substantial difference, but we've also long known that the use of food banks and food charity more broadly in Canada is a strategy of last resort. It makes sense, right? In an affluent society like ours, going to a public charity and, you know, to speaking to total strangers and proclaiming your inability to to afford the food, vital food that you need for yourself and your family, like that's a hugely humiliating thing to do. And so people don't do it unless they really have to. And so I think this surge in demand for food banks that we're hearing about now across the country, I think what that's telling us is that we've got more and more people in more desperate circumstances as we head into the winter and a winter with absolutely unprecedented food price inflation, among other things.
0: I guess in that sense, what, what you're, you're watching is that, uh, I mean, this is people slipping through the cracks quite literally at that point. This is, uh, it yeah. was amazing how many first, first time users that were yeah. seen in that Ontario report. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I have to take you up on this slipping through the cracks phrase because I, you have said that myself, right? Correct correct away. Correct away. Yes. There's someone who works at a food bank in Toronto who is very smart and she very gently heard me say that a few years ago, very gently kind of shifted me and said, these aren't cracks. This is by design. You know, the things that are, are not allowing people to afford basic necessities like food those things are built into some of our public policies they're baked in and so you know cracks implies that it's an accident but here we are in 2022 people like me have been documenting problems of food insecurity for decades now and the situation isn't getting better if anything it's getting worse and for sure it's getting way 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 more serious and so you know it's time for us to look upstream and say like who's in charge here
0: Absolutely. And I guess one thing that you've pointed out and I think is uh, important to talk about, is that food insecurity reaches far beyond the kitchen table, right? It has a yeah. it has a hugely uh, yeah. has a huge impact on 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 any family or any person that's that's suffering through
3: it, yeah. What we have found is that by the time somebody is in a situation where they're having trouble affording enough to eat, we call them food insecure. We'd find them by asking the questions about their ability to afford enough to eat. But once we scratch the surface, we realize that the person who can't afford enough to eat is also having trouble paying their rent, and they're probably behind in utility bills. If they have telecommunications of any sort, they've likely defaulted on them. If they have prescription medications of any sort, and most of them will have, because the intersection between food insecurity and chronic health problems is, is you know, and in glove. But then if they have prescription medications that have any cost associated with them at all, even if it's a $2 dispensing fee, those prescriptions are probably not being filled or taken as prescribed. So, you know, we start out by talking about people's inability to afford the food they need. But it's really, really important to recognize that that is symptomatic of a more pervasive financial crisis in these households, and and
0: one expects, too, that when you look at the impact of that, that it's, um, as usual in, in this country, those who can least afford it who are now being punished by these very high food prices... Yeah.
3: That is absolutely, absolutely true. To give you an example, the single most vulnerable group, if we just look at kind of uh, livelihoods or, you know, sources of income, the single most vulnerable group in this country are people dependent on social assistance. So welfare programs, but also provincially administered disability support programs. In most parts of this country, those benefits, I mean, for years, those benefits have been documented to be insufficient to cover basic costs of rent and food and whatever in many jurisdictions. But in most parts of the country, those benefits are an index to inflation. So as we move through this year with, you know, the price of eggs, the price of milk going through the roof, the poorest people in our provinces, in most provinces in this country, the poorest people have become poorer. Because their benefits haven't been increased. It really speaks to some very fundamental problems with our public policy machinery, right? That how how could we let that happen? You know, I mean, how would we expect somebody on welfare to somehow be able to absorb these continually rising prices, especially of this magnitude? And especially
0: just how universal it is, because we see the cost of housing jumping, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as the cost of food. Food is almost like the final, sort of the final cut, right, Uh, so to speak. That's right. Our reliance on charity, and this is always something we've been talking about, sort of problems that cities face this week. And I know this is not necessarily an urban issue, food insecurity, but it feels like urban, you know, often within an urban environment, you know, housing is more expensive uh, and so forth. Our reliance on charities hasn't seemed to have gone away either. I was reading an interesting article speaking of your many decades of work in this. You know, the food banks were set up many, many years ago as a temporary solution to a temporary need. And here we are 40 years later, still more reliant on them than we've ever been before. Yeah,
3: that's right. Canada is unique in the Western world in this extraordinary dependence on charity. I mean, through the pandemic, as a whole lot of people lost work, What we saw then was, again, and I keep using this term unprecedented, but again, it was an unprecedented outpouring of support for food charity, among other things. But one of the things that happened was provincial governments and and the federal government started to pour cash into the food charity system. And we saw you know, cabinet ministers making speeches saying, we're not going to let any Canadians go hungry. We're going to give millions of dollars to this ad hoc community-based charity system that you know, for 40 years now, the people who operate that system have been saying, look, we're not the solution. We can't do this, right? We're not, you know, we're just a stopgap. We're just a band-aid. Like, you know, what we've seen that I think is really worrisome is the merging of that community-based response, you know, seat of the pants operations with federal and provincial policy now to say, well, you know, we're going to do this. I mean, we recently, I think it's recently as last week, there was an economic statement in Alberta by that with the Premier in Alberta that was pledging, I don't know, $20 million to food banks going forward. And I mean, if there's one thing I know with absolute certainty, putting more money into food banks will not reduce the prevalence or severity of food insecurity in Canada. It hasn't yet, and it's not going to. And, you know, adding more millions isn't going to change that. The reliance on food charity is, I mean, it's part of the problem right now. It's not part of the solution.
0: Valerie Tarasek is with us, a professor in the Department of Nutritional Sciences at U of T, also the head of proof, a research program that investigates a policy to reduce food insecurity in this country. And we come to the solutions because you've been talking about them for a long time, but it feels like when we hit these sort of, you know, coming out of the, the 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 height of the pandemic into a period of high inflation, where it feels like a lot of people have been really, I, I mean, I hate to use the term sort of beat up by the system, but it feels like it's real hard for a lot of people to make ends meet these days. And we've been hearing about that for a long time, but it feels more acute now than it has in the past. What needs to be done so that maybe we could take opportunity from all of this to build back better as a, not to use that awful cliche, but this is an opportunity to, build back better when it comes to some of these core issues
3: yeah yeah well at the end of the day somebody who's not able to afford the food they need is somebody who doesn't have enough money
0: yeah Um, that's simple right that's that's well you know
3: i mean it it, is you know there's a bit probably a bit more to it than that but we're never going to know what else there is to it until we deal with this fundamental income problem You know, when we look at who it is that's food insecure in Canada, I mentioned earlier the very, very high prevalence of food insecurity among people relying on social assistance. So provincially administered programs, and about two-thirds of those people will be classified as food insecure. And so, you know, there's an obvious need for a rethinking of the adequacy of social assistance benefit levels and improvements. And we've seen across the country where where benefits improve, the rate of food insecurity amongst people on income support programs decreases. So like we know it works, but that's something that needs to be built into our system more. The other thing that I should flag though, is that when we look at the total universe of people who are food insecure in Canada, over half of them are in the workforce. So there are households, I should say, that are reliant on employment income. So these are people who are working, but still unable to make ends meet. And why is that? Well, You know, low-wage, precarious employment, inadequate employment standards, so no protection, you know, from uh, job loss, job insecurity, probably no benefits. I mean, we heard through the pandemic about people in, you know, large urban centres like Toronto who couldn't afford to stay home from work, even though they'd been exposed to COVID or risk COVID exposure, because they couldn't afford to go without that day's pay. And unquestionably, if I had gone over there with food insecurity questionnaires, they would have been in our, you know, in our net. Yes, we've got an appalling problem of the inadequacy of, you know, our so-called income support programs of last resort, welfare and disability supports. But we also have a very big problem of food insecurity in the workforce. And that takes us to a different way of thinking about policy, right? Because we've done studies to demonstrate that, you know, minimum wage is part of this story. And it's important, you know, when, as provincial governments argue about whether or not to raise minimum wage and how much to raise it. Somebody needs to sit in the middle of those arguments and say, this is about food insecurity. You know, your decision to raise that by 20 cents or $2, like that's about food insecurity in your province. We also need to think about transfer payments, things like the Canada Child Benefit is not insulating Canadian families from food insecurity, not nearly as well as it could be, but also things like the mysterious Canada worker benefit. We know What else can we be doing to reach out and provide supports to people? Because we want people to be in the workforce, but it's not okay to have so many unable to make ends meet.
0: What could we do in the short term, do you think, that would make an impact? Could, I mean, the other thing I worry about looking to the winter is just, you know, those who suffer in silence. I think of the elderly on, on income support and so on and those on disability support who, if it's not indexed, I don't I don't know how they're going to pay the bills this winter. What can we do in the near future, do you think, that could be a, something that uh, would have results?
3: One of the things that I think the federal government should do is increase the Canada Child Benefit for the right. lowest income families. Right now in Canada, the mere fact that a household contains someone under the age of eighteen is enough to increase their risk of food insecurity. I, that is just unbelievable, right? But that's a little fact of life that's been documented by you know researchers in this domain for years. So when we look at the Canada Child Benefit, it's you know it's a benefit that goes to over ninety percent of Canadian families. It's a beautiful benefit in the sense that it also reaches people on social assistance because it's a federal benefit. So it's not clawed back from um, by the provinces. So, it, you know, its reach is phenomenal. And that means it has the power to make a big difference for families with children. But there, there are thresholds, uh, you know, as to how much you get. And what we can see is that the amount of benefit that goes to families in that very lowest income range, the people with incomes below like thirty, thirty-five thousand dollars, families with incomes below thirty or thirty five, like we're not talking a lot of money here. No. That if the federal government threw another thousand dollars per child on the you know on, on on those tables. Per year. It would make a huge difference to the probability of food insecurity in those, in those families. And now, okay, where would they get that money from? Well, earlier I said that the Canada Child Benefit goes to over 90% of Canadian families. Think about that. That means that the Canada Child Benefit is going to families with incomes like over $200,000.
0: Right. They,
3: don't need, they don't need the Canada Child Benefit. So, you know, this really is a bit of a Robin Hood story, right? That if we simply pulled back a little bit of the top end of that benefit and gave it to the bottom end, we can make a huge difference. So, you know, you asked about, like, what can we do in the short term? Honestly, this is low-hanging fruit. You know, we have yet to see policymakers at the federal or provincial level really seriously saying, okay, what's in my toolkit? Child benefits is a very simple one. It could also be working at a provincial level in many provinces.
0: Valerie Tarasek, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Thank you. BC, meanwhile, uh, has a new premier as well. David Eby has been premier for a little bit now. He's uh, embarked on quite an aggressive number of announcements. He's really trying to put his stamp on things quite quickly. One of the things that he uh, set about doing very quickly uh, was to try to pass legislation, or at least bring in new rules that would allow more doctors trained abroad to get their accreditation to practice here in BC. The numbers are pretty easy to figure out. Across this country, uh, we'll be short roughly 45,000 physicians by 2028. Family doctors account for about three quarters of that. We'll also need to train or hire 30,000 more physicians by 2028 just to maintain the average doctors per capita that is similar to our OECD peers. So again, one obvious way to do that is to take advantage of those who've already trained, who are already here or would like to come here and practice medicine. Uh, So BC even announced new rules over the weekend. They include tripling the number of spots in the licensing program from just 32 to 96 by March of 2024, introducing a new associate physician program, allowing medical grads abroad to start their accreditation process before they arrive here, and creating, a, creating an expedited track for US physicians. Here is uh, Premier Eby. Premier What you've heard today is cooperation between the registrar, between the doctors and the Ministry of Health to make sure we don't leave any health professionals sitting on the sideline while families are looking for a doctor. Getting those doctors into work to the extent that they're able to do so as quickly as possible and focusing on making sure they're delivering care for British Columbians is what underlines this announcement that is uh, BC's Premier David Eby, over the weekend announcing uh, the plan to uh, help more foreign-trained doctors or doctors trained abroad uh, receive accreditation in this province. Well, one person who knows a lot about this is Dr. Toye Oyelese. He is owner of the Westside Medical Clinic in West Kelowna, BC. Uh, Dr. Oyelese was trained in Nigeria. Almost all of the other 11 physicians at his clinic were also trained abroad. And uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank
4: you very much for having me,
0: Ben. Yeah, this is a really, I mean, this is a topic. I think we've been talking about this since I was growing up in the 70s, how important it would be to ease accreditation barriers for doctors from other parts of the world. Um, Tell me what you thought about this announcement in BC. Did it seem to check off the boxes for you?
4: I I think it certainly is a step in the right direction. Uh, I think people uh, should understand that we're talking about duly qualified physicians who are still going to go through a process of uh, being certified to practice in Canada. So uh, we, we don't really want people to mis misinterpret uh, the past tracking as, you know, we're going to let people who probably shouldn't be practicing in the country.
0: Do you think that's been one of the misconceptions that, that, I mean, I I saw an interview you did for a global TV piece where you sort of spoke about, you know, doctors trained abroad are just as qualified as Canadian doctors. Do you feel like there's been, um, you know, uh, misconceptions there about just how qualified some foreign trained doctors are?
4: Um, You know, there might be people with those opinions. I don't think it's the general public's opinion. I mean, they will -hmm. will form their uh, opinion about a physician based on their interaction with a physician. And uh, oftentimes when people come in, not really knowing what to expect, they're pleasantly surprised, you know, when they leave at the level of training, um, you know, of these physicians. But um, when politicians are making statements like this in public and talking about uh, wanting to get people in a hurry, uh, it's a natural reaction to imagine that maybe what you're getting in a hurry um, is not as good as what you have at home.
0: Right. So in this case, they, they mean, certainly all the checks and balances are still there um, in terms yes. of making sure that everyone goes through a fairly rigorous, I mean, rigorous accreditation purpose exactly. process when they come here.
4: Exactly. And, and, you know, part of speeding up the process might involve allowing them to start practice ahead of getting all the requirements, but they still need to get all the requirements within a defined period of time, and those who don't won't be allowed to continue.
0: How was your process to become a doctor here, how, uh, just in terms of your personal experience with it, how onerous did you find it and, uh, and and how much longer did it take than you would have expected?
4: Well, my process was different, uh, and uh, you know because I've been a physician for about thirty seven years and I actually came to Canada in eighty seven I uh, went to school in Nigeria, but I was actually born in Montreal, so I always had Canadian citizenship. So I came back to Canada, oh, I think I was 24 going on 25. I was in an Ontario and for the first two months I was on welfare and then worked in a factory for six months, um, I, you know, worked as a security guard before I uh, then joined the Canadian Armed Forces and was able to uh, get a residency. And uh, then I did a three year return of service before I was able to then practice and I chose to go to a rural area for a few years. So a little bit colorful.
0: Yes that's 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 quite the uh, quite the journey from uh, from Montreal through to Ontario to the Canadian Forces to West Kelowna. um but you do have you've hired a lot of different uh, of doctors who who've been trained abroad uh, do you hear different stories of of how accreditation here worked and whether they felt it was uh worth, you know whether they felt it was it was the barriers were too much
4: Yeah I mean you know there there has been progress that's been made but but a couple of uh, uh you know uh, my two last physicians actually came from the uk and and uh getting them fully licensed um took about six to eight months um so it was definitely a slow process and some of the things they had to do were actually fairly cumbersome and probably unnecessary so there's a lot of room to streamline the process um uh, you know but again like i said they they still don't scream on quality and there's still some very stringent requirements from the college that the physician is still going to uh, still going to have to have prior to practicing.
0: Yeah, in in that sense, um, I, I guess a lot of this, I mean, from province to province and so forth, and 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 just the, the way the whole, I mean, we've talked a lot about how within the whole crisis in the healthcare system, how a lot of it has to do, in some senses, with bureaucracy, and it's difficult, right? Um, how has the experience yeah. been then for your? For I mean, I know that one of the things that came up in the BC plan was to allow more doctors trained abroad to work in suburban and urban areas as opposed to more rural and remote. Unlike where you started uh, your your journey, was, was that something that you think will make a difference?
4: I you know I I think it's a yes and no answer. I I think that having people more people in would help alleviate the problem. It may not necessarily solve. The problem is there isn't a retention plan in place because part of the reasons why we have this crisis doesn't just have to do with there not being enough physicians. A lot of people don't realize there's, you know, over 6,000 family physicians, you know, in BC. It's just that less than 50% of them choose to practice as, um, you know, family physicians and they're doing other things. So, so, you know, it it is, it, it will help, but there's a tendency for people to think, you know, oh, thank goodness, you know, the crisis is
0: over, but no, it's not. It's far from over. No magic bullets here, right? Yeah. We're talking about a BC plan this half hour to make it easier for more foreign-trained doctors to become accredited in this province. Uh, It's something, of course, that many provinces are looking at as a way to try to help ease the the shortage of doctors in, in this country, is to try to allow more people who are qualified doctors to gain their accreditation. I'm speaking with Dr. Toye Oyalesi, who is the owner of the Westside Medical Clinic in Kelowna, B.C., this half hour. Uh, we've been talking about uh, some of the... Benefits of the program, also some of what it does and some of what it doesn't. It's by no means a panacea, a magic bullet to, to solve our issues. Um, and uh, Dr. Orleans, I say you've, you've made this very clear. I mean, you have a very good view of many sides of this of this crisis, including how difficult it is to be a family doctor in this country, specifically, I guess, in BC. But you compared it to sort of having to be, you know, you really do have to take care of everything as the owner of a clinic such as yours. Um, And that means, you know, that's like running a small business and being a physician all at once.
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, what also compounds it is people are used to the idea of healthcare being free. So when you go to a hospital, everything there is being funded by government. You go to an urgent primary care center, even the toilet paper is being paid for by government. But you come to a clinic like mine, you know, uh, the only way you can really sort of I guess get a good sense of it is imagine that teachers had to pay for the schools out of money that they made teaching the kids. So firefighters had to pay for the fire hall and fire equipment out of the money that they made fighting fires. And so over the years, family medicine as a business has really sort of lost its value and there's been less and less incentive on the physician's part to really get involved in the business of running a clinic. And, and that in itself is a huge crisis right now.
0: I know that the province of B.C. specifically has moved to try to uh, change that with some new rules that they're going to put in as well. This is all part of a broader plan. Uh, will that make a difference? This will simply allow um, allow more flexibility in terms of, of how much you can make, in other words.
4: Well, you know, um, there has been an announcement about the plan,
0: and there's been some excitement around the
4: plan, but there's been... Uh, it's very short on specifics. And it hasn't actually been implemented yet. So nobody really knows how it would work. Uh, I cracked a joke that it's like daddy telling me he's going to buy me a new car. I tell my friend's dad's going to buy me a new car. But I don't actually have a new car. And I haven't put it on the road yet. So, you know, like I said, we're cautiously optimistic. We'll see how things go
0: you talked a bit earlier about retention being a big issue as well even in this case uh in bc and i imagine it's the same everywhere uh that there is sort of a time limit on these um on on just how long foreign trained doctors fall under this program and that when they're done they can either leave family medicine they can leave bc altogether
4: yeah and, you know, with the PRAC program, most people don't really understand what's going on. So what happens is you have this government-funded positions where the physician that comes in signs a contract with the government for returnal service. The government can then send them wherever they feel there's a need. The physician doesn't necessarily have a choice per se. But the contract is for a specified period of time, and I'm not really sure what it's going to be in this case, but I think in the past it's been for about three years. You know, subsequently, the physician could go anywhere they please. And they need to understand that if these people are not treated properly and they don't make it worth their while, uh, they're just going to stay for the three years and they're going to be off. And And so it's, we're going to end up with a revolving door. Um, and, and again, people live in family medicine as soon as they can, and we still won't be able to fill the gap.
0: Doctor, say just in general, does Canada have a decent reputation for doctors for, for foreign trained for doctors who are trained abroad when it comes as it as a, to destinations? Uh, does Canada have a decent reputation amongst those looking to go elsewhere to practice medicine?
4: I, I think we still do. Um, I think because Canada as a country has a great reputation. Um, I think there have been people who've come here and have been disillusioned And certainly there have been foreign uh, physicians, even in the area where I practice, who've come and haven't stayed. So, um, you know, I still think that we we, uh, do have a very reasonable market value and do have a chance of attracting uh, foreign physicians. But I do think that the window for that will be closing very rapidly if we, if we don't solve some of the problems we have at home.
0: Really, so you think in that sense? Because I gather, I mean, right around the world, countries are competing for these doctors, right? So it's in some senses, the tables have been turned a little bit of late.
4: That is correct, yes. You know, um, there are there are other countries that physicians want to practice in. So it's not a... It's not a slam dunk simply because we want those physicians. Now, you know, we're still probably going to be able to attract physicians from third world countries, but we might find it more and more difficult to attract physicians from quote-unquote first world countries.
0: Right. Such as at your practice, you have doctors from from Britain, you have doctors from, from many places, right?
4: That is correct. Yes. And, and uh, you know, we have to understand that the programs that we're having these physicians come from are just as good as the programs we have. You take, for example, the physicians who I have come from the UK have actually had to go through a three-year family medicine program, you know, prior to coming here. Our program right now is only two years.
0: So even even more training, and of course, uh, one of the things that was interesting is this ability to allow doctors to do some of this accreditation while they're still wherever they are were before. It doesn't necessarily have to be their home country, but it is something. It's the country they've been trained in.
4: Yes, I and I think that is a great idea because what they're basically doing is streamlining the bureaucracy. There's a lot of bureaucracy involved with them coming here. There's a lot of duplication of what it is they have to do. There's a lot of wait time to do something that. You know, really, it's going to take about five minutes. take For example, the last physician I had had to wait about a month to be able to get an interview with a registrar to get his license. And the interview essentially took about 10 minutes, and it was really quite anticlimactic for him because... You know, now it's all over. I mean, things like that could have been streamlined. And I think that that's sort of what they are talking about, is looking at all those areas where they can make things work better and faster and getting people here.
0: Well, Dr. Oliase, thank you so much for your time tonight.
4: You're welcome, Ben. Thanks for having me.